This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update. Today, we're discussing how one health system was able to free up ICU beds by implementing a remote monitoring program to treat COVID-19 patients. I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Milani, Chief Clinical Transformation Officer at Oshner Health in New Orleans, and Dr. Sandra Kemmerly, System Medical Director of Hospital Quality, also at Oshner in New Orleans. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Well, Dr. Milani, let's, uh, I guess, transport our minds back a year ago and think about the, uh, you know, the beginning of this. What prompted the need for this type of program to monitor patients uh, with COVID remotely? Well, it really was uh, multiple reasons why we had the need. First of all, obviously, there was an awful large number in New Orleans. We just had Mardi Gras, and so that was a super spreader event. So we were getting one of the earliest cities to be hit hard with COVID. And the big concern at that time was hospital beds and in particular ICU beds. So we wanted to be able to think about ways that we could um, bring in only the patients that really truly needed to be in the hospital and try to keep a close eye on those that were concerned about uh, on the outpatient side. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, uh, I know that you have been exploring remote monitoring uh, for a while now. I mean, it's obviously not something you just kind of flip the switch on. So, you know, how did the idea go that we're going to start to you know, change the way we normally do things for for this pandemic situation? Well, well, the good news for us is that we have a lot of experience in remote monitoring. So we've been monitoring for, you know, six years now, patients' blood pressure, patients, you know, uh, uh, glucose and so forth directly from home. We have a COPD program that's monitoring oxygen and other things, you know, in patients that are outpatients. So we really had I think all the infrastructure ready to go. So clearly the goal was how can we outfit uh, individuals and monitor their oxygen levels or heart rates and their symptoms on an outpatient basis so that we can keep a close eye on those that were sort of more in that borderline to high risk range. Um, and so we were, the, the biggest challenge for us at the time wasn't so much to roll out the program was to be able to find available oximetry. Uh, at the time, there was a big run worldwide on oximeters. And so really what was a gating factor for us was accumulating enough oximeters that we can dispense them for patients that we wanted to enroll into this program. You know, that's uh, just one of the many unknowns. It's like when something like this hits, all those kind of normal assumptions kind of go by the wayside because you're facing shortages like this. Dr. Kimberly, you know, at the beginning, you know, you're dealing with a lot of unknowns. And as you learn more about the disease, how did that help shape uh, the program overall? Yes. Yeah, so we all learned on the job. And so, um, you know, we had been studying the disease, the experience in both China and Europe. And so we knew at least intellectually how these patients presented. But until they actually got here and got here quickly and in large numbers, um, we were just um, completely surprised, I think, by how sick people could be when they were having a conversation with you. So for instance, they're incredibly hypoxic and they're talking and all of a sudden they go into respiratory arrest. So we had to learn pretty quickly that the typical management of respiratory failure um, was way different than everything we had seen. So um, to Dr. Malai's point, 
Um, we knew that these patients deteriorated rapidly. The whole state was in a lockdown. And so we needed ways to care for the patients in the settings where they needed to be. So if they didn't need to be in the hospital, we couldn't, we didn't have the, the ability just to keep people in the hospital because they were COVID positive. But then again, knowing what we knew about the disease and people becoming hypoxic really quickly, this tool and this program allowed us to care for patients and be connected to our patients in the home environment. And if they had dips in their oxygenation, then we could triage them to the hospital and be cared for with supplemental oxygen and support. How was what was kind of your rule set about who, you know, is triaged to the hospital and then who is appropriate for remote monitoring? And how did you kind of set that program up? So we set up who was uh, appropriate for hospital admissions. So um, people with COVID that were hypoxic and um, may have been at risk um, for severe disease and respiratory failure. So we had a list of criteria. And for Persons that otherwise were stable and were not hypoxic, their oxygen was greater than 92 or 93, and they were doing well, we would triage them to the surveillance program, the remote monitoring program. And that evolved over time. And as we had new therapies become available, specifically like the monoclonal antibodies, we were able to enroll um, patients at the time we administered the outpatient monoclonal uh, into the program so we keep an eye on them after we had had that intervention. And also it allowed us to monitor patients that we had discharged from the hospital to the home setting or to the post-acute setting to make sure that they were doing okay outside of our hospital walls. Well, let's go into a little bit more detail about the actual program. Uh, Dr. Milani, can you take us through, you know, how does this work? Yeah, so we actually had two programs. The first was uh, we started actually in March that was just a symptom tracker. And so these were people anybody could sign up. I just want someone to kind of keep an eye on me. About, and it was basically a twice daily text that would just say, any changes? Are you feeling worse? Is there worsening shortness of breath? Things like that. And then we'd have a nurse call out if there was. So we, we built upon that and then we added oximetry, which gave us the opportunity to really monitor the most important single vital sign, so to speak, on the outpatient basis, heart rate, but most importantly, oxygen levels. And so we combined those two together. So we had to accumulate enough oximeters that we can distribute them through drive-through pharmacies throughout our system. And this required a doctor's order. So unlike the symptom track that anybody could jump in, if a physician felt you were at risk, you were somebody that we wanted an extra set of eyes or ears or monitoring on, then a physician could easily put an order in and the process would start. So we had a dedicated nurse team that was basically in a in the virtual bunker, so to speak, that it, should there be an alert, whether it be an oxygen level that dropped or a symptom that worsened, it would create a sort of a hierarchy of who that we should reach out to now. And then they that, could uh, like, let's say that that doctor's order came through. Where does the patient then get their pulse oximeter and how is it communicating uh, with that central staff? Right. So basically, uh, they would get their pulse oximeter through a drive through. They would be contacted directly through my chart, so which is the, you know, the mobile app that could be done on a laptop or on their phone. And it would say, OK, you're now been enrolled in the program. Obviously, it wouldn't be a surprise because the doctor would have already told them that. And it would direct them where they should go to pick up their oximeter. Okay. And then from there, twice daily, we'd expect to see readings from them and both in terms of symptoms as well as readings. 
that data would come directly into our EMR that would populate basically a dashboard for the nurses in this so-called virtual bunker. And then based on the responses, it would highlight who they should contact and reach out to in, in the proper order. And based on those conversations, we could say, you know, you're doing great, nothing to worry about, or in fact, I'm concerned about you. Uh, let's get you to the emergency room for a more in-depth evaluation and possibly even in some cases an admission. And then as Dr. Kemley pointed out, within that group, we could identify those even at the highest risk that her infectious disease team could then bring in for monoclonal antibody or any other type of therapies that we'd want as an outpatient. So it really did create a, a very nice way of triaging patients into risk categories. And as Dr. Kemley pointed out, it also allowed us to decompress the hospitals. Very often, we might keep the patient an extra day just to kind of keep an eye on their oxygen level. Now we can free up that bed so that we can still keep an eye on their oxygen level, but on an outpatient basis. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Dr. Kimmel, you mentioned monoclonal antibodies. How, you know, there was a lot of excitement uh, at the beginning of that. And I think then people realized, wow, this is uh, quite an operation. It takes a lot of time. We need the space to do this. How did you work that into this program? Well, we felt it was very important to be able to offer monoclonal antibodies to decrease the hospitalizations and ultimately, hopefully, decrease deaths. So we set up uh, regional locations throughout our system, throughout the state, and um, were able to, and still do, administer the monoclonal antibodies to those who meet the criteria as outlined by the EUA. And so um, we had to uh, retrofit some existing spaces because these were not inpatient beds. And so we had to have an outpatient um, setting to administer them. So it, it took a little bit of logistical uh, support, but we got it set up pretty quickly. And we've successfully um, treated about 3,800 patients with monoclonal antibodies throughout the health system. Wow. Dr. Milani, how many total patients you know, went through this program? Well, the, 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 the symptom checker was sort of the, the early part of the program is more than 10,000. Close to 4,000 have gone through this higher risk surveillance program, and, and it's still active today. We still have patients in the program, obviously a much smaller amount, thankfully, that uh, the rate of COVID infections have dropped. Um, obviously, a lot of benefits to patients in making sure that uh, they're getting the treatment they need uh, and where they are. How about in terms of uh, benefits for the hospital staff, Dr. Kemmerly? Well, I'd say the hospital staff benefited for, to Dr. Milani's point, getting people out of the hospital when it was appropriate and the physicians having a sense that the patients would be safe in the post-acute world. And so I think that everyone um, has had a sense that this has been a tremendous asset to the care of patients. And so there's you know certain entry points where you can enroll them from the emergency room that um, if the physician felt that they needed an extra bit of surveillance and didn't need 
admission or once they've been discharged or in what I mentioned before, uh, once we've administered the monoclonal antibody. So um, multiple ways to get our patients cared for it. And it's been a tremendous help to the care team and, um, and really everybody that cares for these patients. Absolutely. Well, last question for both of you. You know, we're all in this kind of reevaluation phase because there was so much innovation and so much change in adapting to new new worlds, virtual uh, worlds and uh, remote monitoring. When you think about the future, uh, which I hope we will have a post-pandemic future uh, and the not too distant future. But what you know, what do you adapt to the future? What stays, what goes? Uh, how do you see this changing things permanently for you? Dr. Milani, why don't you start off? Well, I think that one of the reasons we were able to pivot so fast is because we had been collecting biologic information, whether it be a blood sugar or a blood pressure or a temperature or things like that remotely prior to this. And I think it, it's one thing to say I'm having a video visit with somebody as you and I are in this conversation, but it's quite another thing to have a, an interaction, a communication while we're also collecting true biologic information that otherwise would require you to be present. So I, I think the future will certainly include more and more and more the ability to be able to collect real meaningful biologic information about a person in addition to just to be able to communicate and see them uh, on an ongoing basis. And this will certainly alter not only our care delivery, but even our ability to diagnose and to manage populations more effectively. Dr. Kimberly, you know, any surprises, lessons learned that you would want to share with other physicians out there? Well, certainly COVID was full of surprises. And I, my sharing would be that, you know, physicians I think our physician in particular were able to adapt really quickly to different ways to care for patients outside of the office, outside of the hospital. And so I think going forward, that will be a, a part of our lives and patients have come now to accept it as well and in some respects expect it. So I think we'll see more and more um, of this longitudinal following um, in the digital remote world than we ever did before COVID. Absolutely. I think the other lesson learned is, you know, the preparation that you had, you know, you didn't know it was going to prepare you for a pandemic, but it did. So uh, great to see that work pay off. Uh, that wraps up our COVID-19 update for today. I want to thank Dr. Milani and Dr. Kamerly for being here and sharing the details of their program. We'll be back with another COVID-19 update soon. In the meantime, for more resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This content was originally published as part of the AMA's COVID-19 daily video updates. Find the latest at ama-assn.org slash COVID update. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.